Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best lean not on our own understanding in all our ways acknowledge him and expect that he will direct our paths so grab your bible prepare your hearts and minds hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the holy spirit and then join me as we open up the treasures of god's word one of the greatest treasures that we have is the book of Psalms. Ever since I began falling in love with God's word, I have turned to the Psalms for comfort, inspiration, understanding and knowledge, and quite frankly, entertainment. As you know, the book of Psalms was the Hebrew songbook, and it was considered very important in the Jewish system of worship. For example, certain psalms are associated with Passover. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. That's a few verses from Psalm 113, which is sung before the Passover meal, also known as the Seder. How about this one? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Those are the first few lines of Psalm 27. The reciting of Psalm 27 is integral for the Jewish people as they prepare themselves spiritually for their annual high holidays. The Psalms are important to the Jewish system of worship. Now, as you are well aware, the gospel tells us that Jesus himself celebrated all of the Jewish rituals, including the holidays. It's almost too wonderful to imagine hearing Jesus as he was singing a few of these lovely gems of worship and praise. How beautiful that must have been to hear. Isn't there just something about music? I mean, we all love it. I've never heard anyone say, I hey, don't play music, I hate music. Have you ever heard anyone say that? Even the devil loves music. He's, in fact, an accomplished musician. Bet you didn't know that. 
Certainly, there can be no doubt that God loves music. Music has always held an important place in worship, all the way down to our modern-day Sunday services. Music is a big part of this ministry. I think worship and singing go together naturally. Wouldn't you agree? And by the way, I have proof of God's mercy. Because when I sing, he doesn't strike me dead on the spot. Most of you probably would. Truth is, even if you can't carry a tune, most of us want to sing his praises. It doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to be loud. It just has to be joyful. Singing is simply an emotion-filled way to communicate. That's why the book of Psalms is so wonderful. It's a collection of writings designed to express love and joy and fear, frustration, loneliness, remorse, and just about every other human emotion. And it was all meant to be set to music. And what makes it so special what makes that music so special is, is that it's the inspired Word of God. And because of that, we teach out of it. Because of that, it has so much to teach us. And so we turn to the book of Psalms time and again in this ministry. This week, we're going to look at Psalm 24. Let me set the stage by asking you a question. Might be a silly question, but hear me out. Who has charge over you? Who has rulership in your life? Now, I know not everyone that listens to this program is American, but the typical American would say something like, no one rules me. I'm my own man. Right? If you're an American, you would agree with that. If you know Americans, you probably would agree they would say that. Americans consider themselves free. They consider themselves independent people who live as they please. Now, the truth of that is debatable, but it is nonetheless how we think. Now, I have a lot of Canadian friends, and as much as our two nations are similar, this is one area that we seem to differ quite a bit from our neighbors to the north or east or west, and some of you to the south, depending on where you live. You see, Canadians still carry a sense of loyalty to the English crown. Just remember, I'm, I'm setting up today's lesson. Canadians still carry a sense of loyalty to the English crown. It seems they've retained the mindset of being subjects of the British monarchy, and they don't mind that. In fact, listen to this. They print their money at what they call the Royal Canadian Mint. They're 
seas are protected by, by what they call the Royal Canadian Navy, and they have a national law enforcement unit that they call the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Now, this isn't a reference to their own royalty. There's no such thing as Canadian royalty. There's no Canadian royal family. The royal in these departments refer to the British royal ruler. Now, that puzzles Americans because we're not that way. We've done everything we can to shake away what we see as shackles to monarchies. Our earliest laws were set up to prevent kings from ever taking rulership in our country. I bet most of you don't know that after or near the last few years of his presidential run, many wanted to make George Washington king. George Washington said, no, we just fought a war to stop all of that. Laws are now in place to prevent any sneaking in of monarchy, of kingship in this country. We don't like that. We are, at least in our minds, self-governing. Now, of course, we're not here for a civics lesson or a sociology class. I'm just stating some observations about the American independent spirit in order to make a point. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, depending on your point of view, Americans don't really know what it's like to be subjects of a monarchy. We've never been ruled by a king, at least not since we became a sovereign nation. I mean, we all fully concur with Abraham Lincoln, who once famously declared that our government is of the people, by the people, and for the people. In other words, we, the people, are self-governed. Now again, there are those who may argue that our reality is quite different from that ideal, but let's just stick to the point. Now, since Mr. Lincoln's day, many, many other nations have begun embracing the of the people, by the people, for the people form of government. Now, having said that, however, there are still some monarchies left in the world, although there's very little real power remaining in most of them. It really actually seems hard to believe that a little more than a century or two ago, kings and queens actually ruled a vast majority of the world. Here in America, because of our history, we like to think of kings as nothing more than cold-blooded, self-centered, dangerous despots who only inspire fear and hatred. In fact, during the 18th century, many not all, but many of the American colonists, as I said a few moments ago, went to war predicated on the notion that having a king was a bad thing. Now, that may have been true at that specific time under that specific king. 
but by and large, those that have lived or currently live under a monarchy actually revere their leaders. Now, the world of today is not really typical of most of human history, but look at how the present-day British citizenry turn out in droves when a member of the now-growing royal family makes an appearance in public. So many Brits are obsessed with their queen and her family, and it, and it appears to have been that way from the very beginning of her reign. Now, just to give you some context, 2018 marked the 65th anniversary of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. On June 2nd, 1953, three million people lined the streets that led to Westminster Abbey just to catch a glimpse of the then 25-year-old daughter of the recently deceased King George VI. Then over 20 million people watched on television. Now remember, this was 1953. 20 million people on television watched as Jeffrey Fisher, the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, placed the crown on her head and in so doing, proclaiming her Queen Elizabeth II. And from there it turned into a grand party. The country was joyful. They were celebrating. There are still Brits alive today who think of that memory vividly. They were crowning a new monarch, and it was a joyful celebration. Even going way back in history, coronations and royal weddings and other royal events were always times of great celebrations among the people. Royal subjects usually love their monarchs. Isn't this true? Very often in battle, commanders can effectively rally the troops by reminding them that they fight on behalf of their king. Do it for the king, king and country. Do it for his majesty. Do it for Her Majesty. God Save the King or Queen, depending on the situation, is one of the world's most recognized songs. Now, we Americans, of course, have stolen the tune, and we've changed the title to read My Country Tis of Thee. But just look at the words of the original, and you can get a sense of the British affection for their rulers. Now, on official occasions, only this first few verses is usually sung. God save our gracious queen, long live our noble queen. God save the queen, sent her victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us. God save the queen. They love her. On occasion, this will be added. Listen to this. Thy choicest gifts in store, on her be pleased to pour. Long may she reign, may she defend our laws, and give us ever cause to sing with heart and voice, God save the Queen. Now here's the point I'm trying to make. Listen to me. The true relationship between a good king 
and a loyal people is one of love and respect. The people revere and serve their king, and then in return, the king loves, provides for, and protects his people. That is the true relationship, the proper relationship between a king and his people. Psalm 24, our subject for today, is actually a reflection of this spirit. That's why we went through this, to show you that people do love their monarchs. They love their kings. Now, by way of background, scholars believe that this psalm was most likely written to commemorate the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. You see, sometime before this, the Philistines had stolen it during a battle with the Israelites. The Bible tells us that they had it for seven months, but it was a long seven months according to the Bible, as far as the Philistines were concerned. From the moment they took it, from the moment they took the ever-important Ark of the Covenant, they endured incredible sufferings at the hands of the Lord, and eventually they were all too happy to give it back. Now, the details found in the Bible of their punishment and judgment from God are a little graphic, but suffice it to say they gave it back with great haste and enthusiasm. In fact, they were so eager to be rid of it and remove God's wrath that the return of the ark was accompanied by, by, of all things, a trespass offering. You heard that right. God's greatest enemy at the time gave him an offering designed to engender his forgiveness. The Philistines were so sorry that they gave a foreign god a trespass offering, hoping that would break the punishment that they had received for stealing it. God doesn't mess around. He may be at the moment letting you get away with a thing or two, but it isn't going to last. Just ask the Philistines as a bit of a side note. Back to this trespass offering. You talk about humiliating. The Philistines were so ready to get rid of that ark, they brought with them an offering. Now, this was indeed a great and remarkable event. Now, some say that Psalm 24, after it was written, was actually sung by the people led by David himself along the ark's return route home. Now, if you're familiar with the psalm. If you've read this psalm before, you may be thinking I'm referencing some other Psalm 24. You see, Psalm 24 in the Bible, the one you have in front of you, doesn't even appear to mention the ark. Not even once. You're thinking, all I see is a bunch of stuff about what appears to be happening when a king returns. That's what I see in Psalm 24, you may be thinking. Is that your experience? Well, yeah, 
That's the same Psalm 24 I'm describing. But listen to this. You see, to the ancient Israelites, the ark was of extreme importance. To them, the ark was where God's presence was seen. What's been called the Shekinah, coming from the Hebrew Shachan or Shachain, which means to dwell. God dwelt above the ark in the form of a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. So the ark was where their king was. You see, Israel though David was on the throne, was really a theocracy and always has been a theocracy. God has always been in charge. David had no misconceptions about who's really on the throne of Israel. It was God. God was the king. To the Jews, God was their ultimate ruler. And his form was associated with the ark. This, therefore, is the connection between a king and the ark. And that's why this psalm is written this way. When they saw the ark coming back, to them their king was returning. You got that? But here's the interesting part of this psalm and the reason why we're going over it. You probably guessed it by now. This psalm is really about Jesus. Now, you've heard me say before that many of the psalms were called messianic psalms because they mention something of the nature, character, or work of the Messiah prophetically. Psalm 24 is a messianic psalm because it talks about our King Jesus, Jesus Christ. It talks about his entrance into glory following the marvelous work of Calvary. Now, we teach on the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant from time to time, and we've learned that the Ark is a representation of Jesus and the work he's done, and it's that fact that makes the connection between this psalm and the Messiah. The Ark makes a connection to the King. Jesus is connected to the Ark. The Ark is the King. Jesus is the King. That's why this psalm is about the movement of Jesus into heaven. We'll get into it in a moment. But this psalm is a prophecy. The setting of this psalm, the triumphal return of the Ark to Jerusalem, is a prophetic representation of what Christ did a thousand years later. Many details tell us this. For instance, the connection between the occasion of its writing, the return of the ark to Jerusalem, and the celebration of the entrance of the great king of kings into heaven can be seen by the fact that Jerusalem to the Jews was considered the city of God, and because of that, it was a type of heaven. So the ark returning to Jerusalem is like the Messiah returning to heaven. Isn't that amazing? This was a real event. The ark had really come from the Philistines and entered the city of Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit took that real event 
then inspired a song that commemorated it, and then while at the same time took the opportunity to declare and celebrate prophetically what the mighty Jesus, King Jesus, was going to do eventually. Isn't that amazing? You can never get these things out of God's Word without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Ever wonder why some people hear things of the Bible and they're like, this is so boring, I don't know how much longer I can take this. While you're beside yourself with your eyes wide open like this is incredible. It's the difference between, why do you think every time that I write the introduction to these podcasts, I make sure that you go to God in prayer and ask for the Holy Spirit, because without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't see these things. With the Holy Spirit, they make sense. They make doi sense. You're like, how could I not have known that? When you read this psalm before, before you were saved, before you had the indwelt Holy Spirit, this would have never made sense to you. Now you have the Holy Spirit, it makes sense to you. That's the difference between us and the world. That's the difference between the saved and the unsaved. Stop arguing about the Bible. Stop arguing with people about the Bible. Tell them what it says without trying to prove it. You'll never be able to prove the things of God to an unbelieving world. Recently, near Jerusalem, they are making archaeological discoveries about the existence of what was then called the city of David, the old Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the old part, was once called the city of David. To an unbelieving world, did you know they didn't even, they don't think David was real? They say there's no existence of proof of the reality of the King David. Now they're making these amazing discoveries in the land of Jerusalem and the non-believing world, and may I say those that hate the Jews, are scoffing. They're saying the Jews are trying to look for fantasy. Though there may be tremendous amount of evidence, they'll never be able to prove anything to an unbelieving world. Does that mean they shouldn't try? Of course that doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that we can't lean on the so-called physical evidence of the existence of the things of God and expect the world to agree they're the things of God. Without the Holy Spirit, they'll never come to that conclusion. You first must convince them to give themselves to Christ so that the Holy Spirit, don't go into too many details. This is just my little side trip about trying to save people. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them what he can do for them. Everyone, listen to me, everyone knows they're a sinner. There are some people who gleefully sin, but they know they're a sinner. 
down deep, I believe everyone that's a sinner knows they're going to pay for it one way or another. That's how you get someone to believe. You tell them that Jesus has taken the payment for their sin. Explain to them that he was God that came down to a sinning world to save it. And then he died as if he were the sinner so that you and I could go be with him as if we were the king, the sin-free king. Get them to agree to that. Get them to accept that. And then tell them about the city of David. And make all the difference in the world. Because the Holy Spirit is the one that connects the dots, if you will. Forgive what may sound like disrespect. I meant no disrespect. I'm trying to make a point. I want you to understand that without the Holy Spirit, none of this makes sense. That's why unsaved people don't stick around this long. I don't even know how long we've been recording. Unsaved people wouldn't have stuck around this long. They don't agree that the, the ark represents the kings. Anyways, let's move on. Let's read Psalm 24. It's short, so it's not going to take long. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully? He shall receive the blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift, lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. Now, when we look closely, we can see that this psalm is broken down into three parts. The first part is meant to glorify the one true God and proclaim the majesty of his dominion. The second part describes the true Israel. And the third part pictures the ascent of the true Redeemer, our King. Yes, America, you do have a king, but trust me, you want this king. So let's start digging. Verse 1 again, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. That's a pretty strong statement. Too strong for some, I must say. You know, one of the unsettling things about Christianity, and I guess religion in general, is how so many people attempt to compartmentalize God into something they can live with. As you can imagine, I have many conversations with people about God, but they usually end up with someone getting upset with me 
because I talk about the God that is represented in these two verses. That's the real God, the one that owns everything and everybody. You see, most people don't want to believe in a God like that. Most people view him, or at least want to see him, as a fluffy, feathery, smiling old man that can be easily duped. Someone that's going to have all the power when I need it, but look the other way when I kind of want to do my own thing. I'll repeat what I said a moment ago. People are forever trying to remake God into something they can deal with. They invent a God that is non-threatening, someone who's not going to get in their way, someone they can approve of and then put on a shelf for a while. When I talk about God, I talk about the real God, the God of the Bible, the God of Psalm 24, the one who created you, who owns you, who's bigger and stronger than anything else you can imagine, even bigger than you. Everything you see, and everything you can't see for that matter, is His. And He has 100% total right to do with it as He wishes, regardless of how you feel about it. He doesn't need to ask your permission for anything, and He will do exactly as He sees fit. Most people don't like that kind of God. This may shock you, but he doesn't care what you think. He has all the power. That's what makes him God. Now, whether you agree with it or not, might makes right. His might makes right. And let me tell you, if you stand on that truth, if you go around declaring that God is the God of Psalm 24, the God that owns everything, the God that has the say-so in everything, you're going to get pushback. You're going to hear stuff like, well, that's not the God I serve. Listen, I'm not sure what God you do serve, but the only God we encounter in the Bible has full ownership of the earth and everyone in it, and he doesn't mind reminding you of the fact that he has total 100% 100 right over it. He created you, he owns you, and he can do what he wishes with you. Now, thank God that that same God encountered in the Bible is a just God. Not only is he mighty, but he's fair and loving and merciful because he can be. He has no one to answer to but himself. He can afford to be merciful. He can afford to be tender and loving. That's why you should never reject his offers. He doesn't have to do that, but he does because he loves you. He does because he can. His style of ownership is one of tenderness and care, but that doesn't change the fact that all of this belongs to him and he's free to do with it as he sees fit, as I said earlier. The opening verse 
of Psalm 24 is simply serving as a reminder of this fact. But it certainly isn't the only place we see such declarations. Elsewhere, God says, for example, in Psalm 50, verse 10 through verse 12, for every beast of the forest, tell me if, if you've heard this before, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. Oh, you have heard that before? Have you heard, I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. You've heard that? Then why don't you believe it? You believe in the grace and loving nature of Jesus, but you reject this part where it says he owns everything? You can't have it all. You cannot create a God that you can deal with. God already exists. He doesn't need to be created. He owns it all and states that he doesn't need your help or advice or approval. God is king, and he's telling you that here in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein, for he hath founded it upon the seas and established established it upon the floods. Now, verse 2 tells us why he owns it. It's simply that he created it. If you make something, it belongs to you. He laid down the foundations. He built it. Now, by the way, the reference to the seas and the floods is just poetically describing the land as being surrounded by water and appearing to have been placed above it. That's just, it's poetry. The point is, the earth is his because he's the builder of it, the creator of it. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about this in his book, The Treasury of David. Quote, the world is Jehovah's because from generation to generation, he preserves and upholds it, having settled its foundations. Providence and creation are the two legal seals upon the title deeds of the great owner of all things. He who built the house and bears up its foundation has surely a first claim upon it, unquote. In other words, not only did he build it, but he provides for it. It is he that keeps the whole thing going. That's why it's his. Verse 3, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. Selah. This next section of the psalm, verses 3 through verses 6, actually describes what's called the, and let me be very careful by saying this, but the true people of Israel. Those that are the citizens of the, again, I'm being careful, true Israel are not distinguished by race, but by character. But don't read into my words. That's not there. I'm going to say right now, because it needs to be said, God loves the Jews. He's not through with the Jews. 
He has prophesied that he will take care of them. Don't work against the Jews. I certainly don't. I just want you to know ahead of time, because this next section is going to sound dispensationalist. In the fact that dispensationalists, some dispensationalists, believe that's a theological theory. Dispensationalism, some dispensationalists believe that God is through with the Jews and all the promises now belong to the church. I don't believe that. But this next discussion is going to sound as if I did. I'm telling you right now, I don't. But this section of Psalm 24 is doing a very good job of telling us what it really takes to be in the family of God. The citizens of the true Israel are characterized by what they do, not where they've been born. It is characterized by what they believe. It is characterized by how they belong to God. You see, God is truly colorblind. That's why Jesus commanded repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. Luke 24, 47. The true people, the people of the true Israel will be purified and prepared by Christ Jesus himself to dwell on his holy hill. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? Psalm 24, verse 3. The opening verses, verse 1 and 2, establish that the whole world and everything in it belongs to God. But to be sure, there is one place in all of this that God owns that is of utmost importance to him, and that's the land of Israel. In fact, it's so important that someday Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, will become the center of the entire universe. Now, we are told in the Bible that during the millennial age, the thousand years when Jesus rules the earth, Jerusalem will be the seat of all of God's power. Now, I'm going to state this categorically and not debate it with anyone. God gave that land, plus some, to the Israelites. There's no question about that. Now, within that very special land, and particularly Jerusalem, there are certain places that are of even greater significance. And this verse, verse 3, that we just read, mentions two of them. The hill mentioned there in verse 3 is Mount Zion. And the holy place spoken of in verse 3 is Mount Moriah. Now, there is a very important reason why both of these special places are being mentioned here with the backdrop of God's rulership over the earth. You see, Mount Zion is the point of military advantage within the city of Jerusalem. And because of that, in this psalm, Mount Zion represents the seat of secular power. And by that, I mean civil authority, administrative oversight, governmental jurisdiction. 
over the day-to-day affairs of mankind. So that is what Mount Zion is representing, secular power. And then Mount Moriah, the second place mentioned there in verse 3, the word Moriah comes from Jehovah Jireh, which means seen or foreseen by God. And Mount Moriah is where God tested Abraham with the sacrifice of Isaac and later where the temple was built by Solomon. That mount represents spiritual power. Mount Zion, secular power. Mount Moriah, spiritual power. So this verse has two mounts two seats of power, one a secular or political power, the other spiritual. Verse 3 is asking who is going to be able to take part in the eventual seat of all power, of both secular and spiritual power? Who's going to be able to be a part of all of that? Who is going to be allowed to go where the king will be and see him in his beauty and dwell in his palace? Verse 3 is asking, who is going to gain admission to the court of the king? Now you history buffs know that the court of any king is a very exclusive place to be. And it was the only place that business, legitimate business, could be conducted, and only the privileged had access to the court of the king. Verse 3 says, who is going to get access to the court of the king? The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple, was where God's earthly presence was found. In ancient Israel, the Holy of Holies was only to be entered by the high priest, and then only once a year. That was God's instructions. That was his law. Access to God is very limited in that day. The high priest was allowed by God to be in his presence, but no one else. No one else was given access to the court of the king. You see, that required holiness. That required freedom from the stain of sin. You can't be in God's presence unless the condition is right, unless you have been washed of sin. That's the access privilege that must be granted to you in order to be in God's presence. You can't be in his presence unless your sin was removed. In fact, to literally and figuratively serve as a barrier between God and man, to remind man that no one can enter into the presence of God, that the access to the court of the king, figuratively, there ex- well, literally, but it served a figurative purpose, there was a large veil or curtain that stood at the entrance to the Holy of Holies. The entrance to the court of the king was blocked off by a very large, heavy curtain. 
that curtain at that time spoke volumes to anyone who was lucky enough to get even that close. You cannot go into the presence of the king. It spoke loudly and clearly about the separation between sinning man and a holy God. Without the work of Christ, verse 3 simply makes no sense because no one could enter into the presence of the king without Christ. It's a nonsensical question. It's like saying, how many of the planets are square? How many planets are cubes? It's a ridiculous question. Who is able to go into the presence of the king? No one. Why ask that question? Unless Christ was there. Unless Christ was meant to be pointed to. You see, verse 3 is in essence an invitation, a call for all to enter that place who are worthy. With Christ, that makes sense. Mark Mark 15, 37, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Listen to this. Verse 38, And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. That moment, the moment that Jesus paid for your sin, That veil, that barrier, that symbolic obstruction to the presence of God was ripped from the top to the bottom. It was the symbolic opening up of God's presence, the symbolic opening up of the access to the court of the king for those who rely on the cross of Christ. That's how you qualify to be in the place of all power. Listen, There's only one seat of all secular and all spiritual power. The throne of God. Nothing else can be spoken of there. Mount Zion and Mount Moriah speak of the throne of God. There's nothing else that could mean that. Just add in the fact that it's Jerusalem. Gives you a little bit of extra evidence that that's got to be the throne of God. Because remember, Jerusalem stood for the city of God, which stood for heaven. Who is able to go in the presence of the king? Only those that have had their sin removed, those that have been given the access card by Christ. That's how we're able to ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in this holy place. Now, this leads us to verse 4. Let's read verse 3 and 4 together so we can get the proper sense of it all. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. The answer to the question in verse 3 is found in verse 4. Those that will be allowed into the glorious presence of the king are those with outward holiness and inward holiness. Let me explain. One who has clean hands is one who is free from sinful corruption of behavior, outward holiness. 
and one that has a pure heart, one that has a mind and spirit that's pointed toward the things of God, have inward holiness. Now hang on. Don't get ahead of me because I know what you're thinking, John. Haven't you told us was all of grace? We'll look at verse 5. He shall receive. In other words, he that hath clean hands. That's a, that is the prerequisite of ascending the hill of the Lord and standing in his holy place. The answer is, he that hath clean hands. He that hath a pure heart. He that has outward holiness and inward holiness. That's how you gain access. Legalists would say, well, how do we do that? You know, we're all sinners. I can't work hard enough, or I'll keep on working because I can't do it yet. Then they say, well, John, you told us it was all of grace. How do we even get in there? That's what verse 5 is for. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This verse, verse 5, is telling us that the one who is able to ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place due to their clean hands and pure heart received those things from God himself. God's telling you that everyone that is standing in his presence, everyone that is, has ascended the hill, has received, this is the gospel, Psalm 24, written a thousand years before the Gospels were written, this is the Gospel. Verse 5 is telling you that this is grace because we received those things from God Himself. We received them by grace. It is a gift of God. You want clean hands? You want a pure heart? You want to ascend the hill? You want to stand in the presence of the Holy One? Then you got to get that through grace. You can't bring that yourself. You can't even start up the hill unless you've received righteousness from God. The privilege of standing with the king in all his secular and spiritual power is given to us by God. Again, we turn to Dr. Spurgeon, quote, They do not ascend the hill of the Lord as givers, but as receivers. And they do not wear their own merits, but a righteousness which they have received, unquote. It's becoming clearer, wouldn't you say, that this Psalm 24 is a picture of the salvation we receive as the result of our King's sacrifice on Calvary. Do you see now why it's so important for you to be a part of the true Israel? Do you see why Nearly week after week, I beg you to give your life to Jesus because this is what you receive in return. Well, what if I don't? Let's just not talk about that. Not in this lesson. This is a glorious lesson. This is a celebration. I don't want to bring us down. Let's talk about what if you do. If you do then you can ascend the hill and stand in the presence of all secular and spiritual power. Listen, every single day, you and I are frustrated by something that is out of our control. 
something that we don't have power over. When God wraps this up, that's gone. You know, someone once said that when Adam was in the garden, he didn't have to do anything. He would say to that tree, hey, bring me a banana. And the tree would move and bring him a banana. Hey, I wish the breeze was blowing. Poof, here comes the breeze. He had power over everything. God gave it to him. There was not a single thing to worry about. Adam had no idea what death was. Can you imagine what that's like? If you've lived as long as I have, you've shed a few tears over death. And you felt powerless as you watched the ones you love slip away from you. And you couldn't do anything. That goes away once we're up on that hill, standing in the presence of the king. Psalm 24 is a prophetic picture of the salvation that we receive as a result of what our king did on Calvary. His death and resurrection gave us what's required in order for us to be with him in his glory on the hill and in the holy place. And what's wonderful is he wants that for us. He went through a lot to give that to us because he loves us. Remember, this is a psalm of David commemorating the return of the ark, a type of Christ, and it was written a thousand years before Christ's work and at least 3,000 years before the millennium when Christ will rule from Jerusalem. If that doesn't strengthen your faith in God's promises, I don't know what will. Verse 6, this is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Those that fit the description, this is what verse 6 means, those that fit the description of having their clean hands and pure heart given to them through grace, given to them as a result of their faith in the king's work, are the generation. They are the family related by grace. These are the true family of God through faith, and yes, that will include Jews. It will include Greeks. It will include, include Americans, Ethiopians, Russians, you name it. If they've heard God's word and received him into their heart by their choice, they are a part of the generation. They're a part of your family and mine, provided you've done so. As seekers after God's righteousness, we're so special to him, he sees us as his family. He tells us that we should call him our father. It's the spirit in us that gives us the desire to seek him and to seek his face. We said that earlier. That makes us able, not in our own worthiness, but in Christ, to, to ascend the hill and stand in the holy place. This special status applies only to a subset of the whole, and so God looks at us as a family, as a generation. And again, people don't like to hear that. To them, it sounds 
discriminating. What kind of God keeps people out? A powerful God. A God that can do what He wants. A God that owns everything. And a God of justice. Listen, the only ones doing the exclusion are the ones who exclude God from their lives. This is open to everyone. Jesus told the parable of the man buying the entire field to get the treasure out of it. He bought the rights to the entire field to get the treasure out of it. We become a part of that treasure. We become a part of that subset, a part of that family when we agree to be born again, when we agree to be born from above. Verse 6 is describing those that had their nature, their association with the family of fallen man broken by their choice. Verse 6 describes those that have accepted grace. Once we obtain our clean hands and pure hearts, we are placed into a new generation. And believe me, if you've gone through this, you feel it. Not that we go on feeling. But I think we can't help it sometimes. Once you're saved, and it may take a little bit of time, but you continue to nurture your relationship with your new family, with your new father, once you continue to open yourselves up to being a part of this new subset, you're going to change. You're not, you're going to, you're going to achieve more change by not trying than you would have in a thousand years of trying. Because the Holy Spirit is now present in your heart, doing the change, and you're going to feel it. You're going to feel separate. And again, if you're nurturing that, you're going to want to feel separate. You're going to be extremely sensitive to the broken nature of humans. It's going to be really tough to read a newspaper. It's going to be really tough to watch some of the trash that ends up on television. And I don't mean to sound like some old crotchety preacher. But the closer I get to God, the less interested I am in Hollywood. Let's keep moving. Verse 6. Let's read it again. It might make it a little bit easier since I got into so many side trips. Verse 6, This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. And then it ends with the word selah. Selah just means think of that. Go over that in your mind. Muse on it because it's so amazing. For your acceptance of his grace you become a part of the king's family. 
And as a part of the king's family, you're allowed to ascend the holy hill. You're allowed to stand in his presence in the holy place. You are allowed to be a part of all the secular and spiritual powers. Selah. Think of that. We're almost through. The closing verses of Psalm 24 refer to the King of Glory five times. Five, by the way, is the number of grace. Is that why God made it five times in Psalm 24? I think so, but he didn't tell me that. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that's why he did it, but I have a feeling that's why he did it. We know that the King of glory is our Lord Jesus Christ. We know the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who's being celebrated here. Because there's never been anyone in all of history that can be given a name like this. Verse 7, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Now this verse is reminiscent of a scene that occurred a thousand years later on Mount Olivet. Acts 1.9. Remember this? And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. That's when Jesus was lifted up from this earth and ascended into heaven in total victory. Now, we can imagine if we were present when after his work on earth was finished, he was carried up triumphantly, we would have heard something very similar to Psalm 24, 7 being spoken from heaven. Lift up your heads, here he comes. O ye gates, here he comes. And ye be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Can you imagine how wonderful it must have been in heaven that the King was returning to them? They must have been saying, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. This could only be heaven, if for no other reason it references everlasting doors. Not a single door in Jerusalem, the physical city of Jerusalem, had everlasting doors. We know that if you, just by looking at the ruins of it today. The everlasting doors are the doors to heaven. This is a picture of the king ascending into heaven. The same cry is repeated in verse 9. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come. This is so important. God said it twice. By the way, two is the number of adequate witness. If two of you shall agree on something, then it is. So he said it twice. The king of glory. It's a confirmation he's the king of glory. Is that why God put it in there twice? Don't know. It's interesting, though, don't you think, how God works those numbers into the Bible? The king is coming. Prepare his entrance and don't delay. Verse 10. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Who is this coming? It's 
Jesus the King. He's the commander, the captain, master of all that there is. His psalm is ending exactly how it began, by declaring the Lord's ownership, his rulership, his complete authority over all things. He owns it all. And the Bible tells us that he wants to make us joint heirs of all things. Now, when, when he says joint heirs, he doesn't mean you get a piece and you get a piece and you get a piece and pretty and after long with millions and thousands upon thousands of millions of saved souls, our piece is going to be pretty small. That's not what that means. Joint heir means you get what he gets and I get what you get and we all get what Jesus gets. It's all ours. We're joint heirs. We're heirs with him. And he has everything. He has all power. Now, this isn't why you should do this. You should do it out of love, but this is what you get. You should do this out of the, because of the truth of it, but this is what you get. Why not accept this call? Why don't you want to be in the royal family, the generation that's allowed to be in the presence of the king? Stop seeing the things of heaven with the eyes of the world. This invitation is open to all. We've said that several times. God said that he's not willing that any should perish. But you have to do it his way. The world wants you to see that as discrimination, as exclusion, as non-inclusion. But God wants you to see it as grace. Listen, he paid the price for the whole field, as I've already said, because he knows the treasure is in it. Listen, not all are going to accept this invitation. God knows that. And they're going to fight it all the way to the end. Don't be one of those. Find your place in the court of the king. Accept his work on Calvary. Then ascend the hill of the Lord and enter the holy place where you'll find peace that passeth understanding. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.